Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 is where we will spend our time together this morning as we continue our series entitled Unveiled, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And over the last several weeks, we have been working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. And we are in the section dealing with the messages to the seven churches. And I want to say thank you to Spencer for preaching in my absence last week, dealing with the church at Sardis. And uh, today, we'll be focusing in uh, on the message to the church in Philadelphia. You see, uh, in this series, uh, as we have moved into this section, uh, we have had the opportunity now uh, to look at five of the seven churches. Today, we will get the sixth, and there'll be one more remaining. And just by way of reminder, recap, uh, we started off with the church at Ephesus, the church who was solid in doctrine, but short on love. From there, we made the trip to Smyrna, and we looked at a church that was dealing with great persecution, but being faithful to the Lord, even though they were going to experience uh, more trials to come. Then we moved to Pergamum, a church who had begun to compromise with false teaching and idolatry. Then we moved to Thyatira, a church that was very tolerant, and had begun to tolerate certain evils and certain belief systems that were starting to erode the working and the foundation of the church. And then last week, we looked at Sardis. Sardis was a church that had a reputation, but reputation and reality had begun to move away from each other very sharply. They had a reputation that they were alive, that they were vibrant, that they were working, that they were moving and active, uh, but that was not the case. Jesus made the assessment that they were dead. And today now, today we'll be looking at the church in Philadelphia. And this church is a church that is passionate about the gospel, passionate about Jesus, and passionate about the word of God. And if you had to ask me, you know, Jamar, as the pastor, lead pastor at Word Baptist Church, which, which church do you want to be? I would tell you this one right here. And so today we're going to have an opportunity uh, to look at the church that I believe that uh, every church should seek to model, every church should seek to follow. Uh, we're going to see that in the construction of this particular message, that there is no uh, criticism, there's no uh, negative thing that the Lord has to say to this church. And we're going to see that this church, I believe, puts a smile on the Lord's face because the individuals in this church, their passion for him, their passion for his word, and their passion for the mission. You know, I know that we as a people sometimes uh, can be passionate about things, whether it's your hobbies or whether it's a particular sport or whether you like to travel. If we were to just do a quick little survey around the room, uh, we could find very quickly uh, something that you are passionate about. And the way in which we would know that you are passionate about it is because typically you're going to talk about it. You're going to make sure that you invest in it. You're going to make sure that other people know that you are passionate about it. You're going to give time to it. And so when I think about this, this particular church, this particular movement, it reminds me of a time in my life where I had an opportunity to go watch a live sporting event. I remember it was very cold, wintertime, and it was playoff football. And the team that I happened to be cheering for, they were the opposing team. And so a good friend of mine uh, who, upon uh, talking with him, I discovered that he had long since stopped following the team that my team was going to be playing against. So I thought, you know, he was a good person to bring along with me. He was kind of neutral. That makes sense. And so we made the decision that we're going to make this uh, drive, about six-hour drive, to go watch this athletic competition playoff football. And I remember sitting in the car thinking about the drive and thinking about the time and how everything was going to go. And as we got closer and closer, I began to get more excited. And then we pulled up and I could see the stadium in the background and there was red everywhere. Sea 
of red. And I got out of my car and I had on my blue from head to toe. You could have mistaken me for a Smurf. I had so much blue on. And I remember as we walked up to this stadium, red everywhere. And there's just a few little sprinkles and spots of blue. We get into the stadium to which the announcer let me know that there were over 73,000 people there to watch this event. And as I looked at this crowd of people, I'd never seen so many people in one place in all my life. Population of Jonesboro barely getting to 70, right? right? So you look at the sign, it's not even there. It's not even to 70,000. And I remember being in there very, very nervous because I was in the sea of red. But can I tell you, I came that day with one thing on my mind, and that was to cheer my team on to victory. And all those other thousands of people that had this sea of red, they had the same thing on their mind. As the game began to start, I can remember this chant just going up in the stadium. It's just loud. It's in the stadium. And I'm looking around, and all of a sudden, the brother that I came with me, he was tomahawk chopping over there with everybody else. And I thought, what in the world have I gotten into? The one brother I thought was with me in here, he didn't join everybody else. And so the game began. And can I tell you, we didn't play well the first half. As a matter of fact, we were down. And I can tell you, all throughout that first half, that the, the sea of red, they were cheering and they were yelling and I was cheering and I was yelling and they were trying to convert me over to go from blue to red. They would throw their, their, their things on me and say, you can wear this. And I'd be like, no, nah, I don't want to wear that. They'd be like, look, you can wear this. Your team's not doing it. I don't want to cheer for your team. They had a little liquid courage in them too, so it made them even that more crazier. Second half begins and I'm just as fired up as, as I was when the game started. But can I tell you, a few and far between and I remember as the game began to progress, my team began to come back. And can I just tell you, if y'all think I'm loud in here, you should have heard me that day. And I remember as I began to yell, as we got first down at the first, and I'm yelling, ooh, 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 ah, going crazy. One of the fans behind me, he said, I liked you better when y'all were losing. And I'm cheering and I'm cheering. And ultimately, we win the game. We go up and win the game. And I promise you, I was in the aisle yelling and celebrating, okay? And I remember, I will never forget this. People that did not know me, people that I do not know, they were upset. One of them waved at me, but he only did it with one finger, all right? So y'all can just put that in your own mind's eye. He had to be upset. He couldn't make any plays. I couldn't make any plays, but he took it personal. You hear what I'm telling you? And as I think back to that moment, I think back to the way in which we are to be as Christians. You see, I believe that there is a kingdom. There is, there is a king who has a kingdom. And as we are in enemy territory. And we are to cheer our king. We are to cheer him. Can I tell you, he is already victorious. And when we see our king's people, whenever they do battle, we are to cheer them on, even when we are outnumbered, even when the odds are against us, even when it looks like we are losing. And we cheer and we shout and we trust and we follow because there is a battle that is being fought. And the one thing that is different the one thing that comes to my mind that is different from that game that I went to and the reality that we face is that when I pulled up to that stadium, I had no idea whether or not we were going to win. But can I tell you, every day as a Christian, what I know is that I'm already victorious, no matter what it seems like, no matter what it looks like. You see, today we're going to look at a church, a church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the place, modern day Turkey, Asia Minor. We're going to see this church that was small. There was not very many of them. They were outnumbered. But God was working and moving in their life. And so today, as you come here, many times we come here to a church service and we expect to hear from God. I hope you came here expecting to hear because I believe he has a word for you today. I pray that you came here expecting to understand and to know that there's a way in which God wants to use your life for his glory. Because we're going to see in this church, the Church of Philadelphia, that there is a way in which God desires to move and to work as we cheer on our victorious Savior and King. 
Yes, there will be obstacles. Yes, there will be those who try to get us to change allegiances. Yes, there will be those who treat us in a way that we shouldn't be treated. But can I tell you, we are already victorious. There's a passage I want you to see before we get into our passage. It's in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It'll come on the screen beside me and behind me. And it says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You see, one of the things I know, we're going to lead up there. One of the things that I know is that when I walked up to that stadium and I was outnumbered, one of the things that I was letting everybody know by, by the colors that I wore and the logo that was on me, I was identifying with a certain team. And I was not ashamed. I, wasn't, I didn't try to cover up who I was. I didn't try to cover up why I was there. It was blatantly, boldly laid out in front. And can I just say, I believe that in this season, in this time, in this time, as we live as a people, that I believe God is looking for people that are not ashamed of the gospel. You're not trying to hide your life. You're not trying to cover up who you belong to. You're not trying to, to, to hide that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are willing to boldly proclaim who he is, believe his word, and live it out publicly to see him change and transform lives. And the reason why we shouldn't be ashamed, the text goes on to say, it says this. Why? Why should we not be ashamed of it? Somebody help me. For it is the what? Power. It is the power of God. It is the power of God specifically for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so when we think about this time, the time in which we live, the same power that God was working out in Philadelphia in this day is the same power that God is working out in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and around the world in our day. And we must be willing to hold to the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this church, we're going to see a church who was willing to allow this message to be what it's all about. You see, the gospel message is the primary purpose that we have here as a church is to deliver and to live out the gospel message. I know that there are a lot of things we can do in church. We sing in church. We pray in church. We study in church. We have children's church over there where you can go in and get your time. We have stuff for youth and college students, and we go out and we do different trips. But can I tell you, they are all centered and founded on one thing, the gospel, the gospel message. And I believe that it takes lives, individuals' lives that are centered on one thing. So before we get into this passage, I have one question for you. What is your life centered on, founded on? Is it the gospel? Our passage is going to break out into two sections today. Verses 7 through 9, we're going to see that the Lord, he commends faithfulness to the gospel. And in the last section, verses 10 through 13, we're going to see that the Lord, he commands us to live by his promises. And that's very important when we think about the dynamics of our Lord and Savior, that he calls us to trust his promises. Hope you've had an opportunity to find Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in our first section. It says this, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shut, no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. The first thing we're going to see this morning is that the Lord, he commends faithfulness to the gospel. See, Philadelphia, Philadelphia was an important city in Asia Minor. That's where our letter is written to, to the leader, Church of Philadelphia. From its background, it's very important to catch a few things here that we must move southeast from Sardis. We must see that Philadelphia, the name in and of itself means brotherly love or love of the brother. You see, the Pergamian king who founded it, 
named it after his beloved brother. He had a great relationship with his brother. And so he, in this city, named a lot of buildings. He put his brother's image on the coins. He had a great, deep love for his brother. We see politically, this city was singled out to be a city that was designed to spread the mission of the Greco-Roman world. So it was seen as a cultural and linguistic hub to be able to move the culture east. And so we see that from a political standpoint, it was designed to move the thoughts, the art, and the ideas of the Greco-Roman world forward. From a commercial standpoint, it's a very wealthy area. In this area, textiles were very important with wool and linen. There was also vineyards, vineyards if you're from the country. And so thus you would have the fruit of the vine. And so thus the industry of wine was very big there. We also see that this area had a main road that ran through it and it was known as the gateway to the east to be able to get these goods and these things out to Asia and move out to the east as well as to be able to move and bring things from the east back into uh, to Rome and, and to the culture there. You see, this region was very important. Spiritually, spiritually because it was designed to move all these ideas of Greco-Roman life, it also would move the festivals and the deities. And so they were in very much, population was large of the different idols and deities. So that way they could move them as people would come in and come out of the city. And so then you would have this ragtag group of people called Christians. Amongst all these pantheons of gods and all these individuals who were well known, you had these Individuals called Christians who were small in number. And in the midst of all these things, you see God was at work. He was moving. One of the things that was troublesome about Philadelphia, though, even though it had so many things going for itself, is that it was a city that was known for earthquakes. Anybody know anything about Jonesville, Arkansas? You know we're on a new major fault line. Anybody know that? Yeah. If you moved here, nobody told you that. I'm sorry. But we are one of the, uh, when it comes to severe and strengths of earthquakes, we are on one of the most severe fault lines uh, in all the, of America. Some might say in all the world. We sit right on this, all right? So just so you know, one day that thing going to slide, all right? And we're going to all know. But Philadelphia, it sat in a very earthquake-prone area like Jonesville, Arkansas. And there had been a time, A.D. 17, where an earthquake decimated the city. It destroyed the city. And so thus many people were afraid. They were afraid to move back in and to build their homes and to establish a structure. So a lot of them stayed on the outskirts, the suburbs, we might call it, the country. But some dared to come back into the city, even though it was prone to earthquakes and to destruction. That's going to matter when we look at our Lord's words to the church. In his description to these believers, there are some key things that he says. Look with me in verse 7. He says, is he who is holy. The first thing that he says to this church and about himself is that he is the holy one. The holy one. Now, this is an important descriptor because this means one who is separate. One who is unique. One who is distinct. There is one and there is only one. There's no one like this holy one, this Jesus. He is the holy one. He is separate. He is pure. He is undefiled by sin. So when he identifies this in a world that they were living in in Philadelphia where you had all these different deities, all these different lowercase g gods, the first thing that the Lord reminds them of is that he is holy, the holy one, the one that is separated, the one that is unique, the one that is not like any other. And whenever we start thinking about this, it's important for us to recognize the dynamics of this statement. This is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ is God. That's, that's what he's saying here. Don't miss it. If you're taking notes, I just want you to jot down for me 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1, 2, and 3, 14, and 18 to be able to set this. I want you to catch it now. It says this 
in the beginning was the word. Did everybody see that? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. That word who was in the beginning with God, he was also God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, here we go. All things came to being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So how in the world do you know this is Jesus? How, you, how in the world do we know this is the one who was set apart? Thank you for asking. Verse 14, that same word and the word, what did it do? It became flesh. What did he do, that word? It became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. That word took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten. That means unique, doesn't mean created. It means unique, distinct, only one of his kind, begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You still don't believe me just yet? Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. What did he do? He has explained him. You see, when he says the Holy One, when he is laying this out, he is reminding them and he is reminding us that he is divine, which means he is powerful, that he is separate, that he is unique, that he is distinct. And in his holiness, he made the decision to take on flesh and dwell among us, to, to, to make sure that he is the only one of his kind, the only God man that ever has been, that will ever be, that he is the only one and you can trust him. You see, last week, the reason why I was gone, I was with a group of college students, and I was at this time, I was actually preaching up there in northwest Arkansas. It's amazing. And we're sitting in the room the day before, and we were having a session on Jesus according to Scripture, and I was challenging these students on the deity of Jesus. And I said, look, if I don't believe that Jesus is God, how in the world can you show me from the Bible? And we had a great time up there. And so I took the students right here, and I said, I want you to understand something now, that we have a God who was willing to take on flesh. You see, most people get, get it mixed up and they say, oh, you know, Jesus Christ wasn't God and man. And they think that what we are saying is, is we are saying that man became God or that a man became God. That is not what we are saying. We are saying God stayed God, but he took on flesh to dwell among us to show us the way in which God is desiring for us to live. And so for these individuals in Philadelphia, they needed to remember that God took on flesh. He lived just like you and I, went through the same temptations and struggles, but he was victorious at every turn. And so thus we can trust him no matter where you are, no matter what you go through, no matter what you're dealing with. I challenged those students. I said, you know, if a king, if he takes off his crown and off his, his robe and his rings and he walks out among his people, in the common clothes, does he stop being king? And you know what they all said? No, he doesn't stop being king. And I said the same way, God, just because he takes on flesh and he has hair and you can comb it and he has a beard and brushes teeth and he cried and he was hungry, just because he took on flesh doesn't mean that he stops being God. Not only is he the holy one, but the text tells us he's also the one that's true. Verse 7 says this, he who is holy, who is true. Now, now, can I tell you, I get fired up at this moment because Jesus is reminding them that not only is he the only God, not only is he the one that they should trust, but can I tell you, he is the genuine one, that he is true. Whenever you see this word true, it carries these ideas, faithful, dependable, reliable, trustworthy, and genuine. This is not a knockoff God. You hear what I'm telling you? You can't pick him up at some swap meet. You can't find him at a flea market. He is genuine. You understand me? One hundred percent. He reminds them that they live in a world full of idols. They live in a world full of false gods. They live in a world full of things pulling for their time, attention, and desires, but he is the only one that is the true one, the one who is genuine, the one who is real. He is dependable. He also, he also is faithful. Then he gives this next descriptor about himself. He says this, who has the key of David, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. 
Now, this is an interesting descriptor because you notice that each church got a descriptor from the, from the previous chapter in chapter 1 that Jesus was, was uh, identifying himself. And in that chapter, it says that he has the keys to death and Hades. It doesn't say anything about David. So where in the world does this key singular of David come from? Where, where, where are we getting that from? Well, this is a great question. I'm so glad you asked this morning. See, this has to do with the authority that he has, that he has authority over death and Hades, yes. But also, this is taking our minds back to the Old Testament. If you're taking those, just jot down Isaiah 22, 20. It has a, this story where there was an individual who had the keys, the keys. And, and in the treasury, he was supposed to be dispensing these things faithfully. But he began to use those treasures for himself, building up himself. And so they had to take the keys from him. The king would have given the keys. He was supposed to take them faithfully as an opportunity, and he did not do it the right way. And so what Jesus is highlighting here is he's the one who has the authority over the opportunities that you and I have. He is the one that carries not over only authority over death and the grave, but he also has authority over the doors that are open for the opportunities that you and I have each and every day. Where are you getting that from, preacher? Well, this idea of doors. See, in the Bible, when we see this, especially in the New Testament, has to do with ministry opportunities, opportunities for the gospel message to advance. And he's saying, listen, I'm the one that has the keys to those opportunities. Now, in our culture, specifically, I'm going to give you a scenario. If you are sitting in your house and the door is unlocked, but the door is closed and somebody knocks, what do you say to them? Come in, it's open. Is the door open? No, it's just what? unlocked right so many times what happens in our minds is is that we 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 don't exchange these well and so what we have to understand is, is that many times in our world a door seems closed as a matter of fact it might be closed but the question is is not is it closed the question is what is it locked and so what Jesus is saying here very clearly is that there are places and times and opportunities and ministries in countries and in people's lives that sometimes, listen, it looks closed. We can't get in. It's not going to be accessible for the gospel. They don't want to hear it. But the question is, is not whether or not it looks closed. The question is whether it's unlocked or not. And so when we think about this, because I'm trying to teach us something, to teach us how to pray. You see, I believe that the majority of the things that God puts on your heart to do, the majority of the time, the door looks closed. That's why he brought it up in the first place. But what we have to understand is that it's not a matter of whether or not it's going to take effort to get in that thing. It's whether or not has you unlocked it, Lord. Have you unlocked it? And are you calling us to come and to take your presence and your power and your truth and to take it straight to that door and open it up so that people can come out, so that the truth can go in, so that lives can be transformed? question. What doors is he opening? What doors has he unlocked? Just a quick question. So how do you find out if a door is unlocked? What do you have to do? Yes, jiggle a handle, baby. You got to jiggle a handle. And far too many times what happens in our lives is we see a door that's closed. We see an opportunity that's closed. And many times we just turn around and we go home. Or we, keep, or we keep talking to God, right? How crazy would it be to, to know that you're inside of a room and somebody is asking you, hey, can I come in? And you say it's open, but they keep standing outside, right? They keep standing outside. And I'm going to just tell you, I just believe that God is a good enough God and the Holy Spirit is working right now. He is convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment every single day. And I'm telling you, I believe that there are many doors that are unlocked, but we have not been willing to open them up just yet. We have not been willing to go and jiggle a handle. We've not been willing to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do in this country, in this place, in this relationship? We have not been willing to ask. But he is saying that when he opens it, nobody, nobody going to lock it back. But the reverse is true. Did you catch it? He says, who opens, who opens and no one shuts? And what else? Who shuts? Can I just tell you, whenever he locks the door, when he closes that thing off, you wasting your time jiggling that handle. You know what I'm trying to tell you? You are not going break, to break it open. And can I just say that what I have found in my life is that when I come to a, a situation or a position or a place or relationship or an opportunity and it's locked, the best thing I know to tell you is to be patient and prayerful. Because just because it's locked now, don't mean that it's always going to be that way. But the Lord is the one that has to open it up. 
Not only that, though, let's see how he affirms the church. Look with me in verse 8. In verse 8, he says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Did you see that? The Lord said, listen, I done put a door that's open before you. And guess what? Nobody's going to shut it. Nobody's going to shut it. You see, this church, the, the, this church was a small church, but they were passionate. Did you catch it? They were passionate about the word and about the name of the Lord. Did y'all see that? Can I just tell you, if there's anything that you personally and us collectively as a church need to make sure we do, it, we need to make sure that we are passionate about the word of God and about the Lord himself, about his name. There are two things we must do. We must make sure we take his word seriously and we take him seriously. When he says that, 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 that this church, they kept his word, and they did not deny his name. What he's saying is, is that they understood that the gospel message was the power, that that's how God is changing and transforming hearts and minds and lives. This foolish message of a Messiah dying on a cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb and raising on the third day, that is the message. And it will radically change your life and any life that believes it, that be willing to surrender to it. I don't know if y'all believe me just yet, so let me just throw it on the screen. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Can I just tell you the reason why this is important? Because there is no other way. I, I know that's probably controversial in our day. And as people talk crazy about what they want the church to do, and they can take tax exempt statuses and do all these other things, let, let me just tell you, the stuff that we go through as a church now, the church has already been through before. So I want you to hear me. There is one way. One way to be saved, one gospel message, catch this, and there is salvation in no one else. Did y'all catch that? There's, I, I'm not trying to be politically correct. I'm trying to be biblically correct this morning, okay? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The church in Philadelphia, they were not playing games. They were not trying to syncretize any, anything in. They were not trying to say, well, maybe if you sincerely believe what you believe, then you'll be all right. Nope. It mattered who you serve because there was only one name, only one. And this church, they were serious about it. And they took the Lord serious. And they knew that even though they were small, even though they were weak, they knew who had the power and they connected to him. And they allowed that power to work. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? He says it this way. They kept my word. And they have not denied my name. Now, when we look at this idea of keeping the word, let me just be brief here. But I think it's important. They understood the value of the gospel. They understood the value of the gospel. And they understood the fact that God he is not calling us to live by explanations. He is calling us to live by promises. There are so many times in the church and so many times in our lives that we want God to explain himself and to explain why he did it this way and why he didn't do it that way and why he asking us to do it this way. Can I tell you, we do not live by explanations. We live by promises. We live by the fact that he has promised because when he promises, he cannot lie. And we always look to the promise to know how we are to live our life. So can I just encourage you here for a minute? Just like this church in Philadelphia, they knew exactly what they were going through. They knew it was difficult, but they had read the promises. They remembered that Jesus Christ said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. They knew the promise that the Holy Spirit was going to come and fill them with power. It didn't matter what kind of pressure they went through. They knew the promises that as long as they focused and kept their eyes on Jesus Christ, that he would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, giving them the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. They believed these promises. They didn't have to get all the explanations nations of why and how and when and what they trusted the promises and the gospel message is a promise it is a promise in which we see the crucified messiah raised up in glory and we attach our life to him and we are waiting on all these things to be fulfilled and we trust his promises if today if today you have not looked for his promise today today if you don't find any then I'm not doing my job up here because they all over this text. And can we, can we, I'm not saying don't ask God why, 
But, but can you just do me a favor when you're asking why? Look for the promise first. He's calling us to live by promises, not explanations. They valued the gospel. But can I tell you, they also noticed this. He says that they didn't deny his name. I like to say this. They had the proper view of Jesus Christ. Not only did they value the gospel, but they had the right view of Jesus Christ. Can I just tell you, any church that has power from a, from a, a life-changing, life-altering way, any church that has that, they're going to have these two things. They're going to take the gospel seriously, and they're going to take Jesus seriously. Can, can I just say it like this? I'm, I'm ready to preach a little bit. Y'all ready? They had a view of Jesus that transformed the way in which they lived. Like, can I just tell you, when you pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what should be happening when you read about Jesus' life is it should be giving you a perspective of who he is that should change the way in which you live. When, when you watch Jesus and you see him interact with the disciples, let me just give you some examples here because we got to see him as awesome. I, I just find that most people have a view of Jesus that is not correct because it's not biblical. And whenever you look at how he had the dynamic with the disciples, how he called these men and he called some of them as fishermen to come and follow him. He had a tax collector. He said, you come on out of that booth. You come on and follow me. He had one who was a zealot, wanted to overthrow the government. He said, you, you, you. Yeah, you come on, follow me too. And in the midst of all these things, you had all these competing ideas. How, how, would you, how do you think it would go to have a zealot and a tax collector being in the same crew? Do y'all know what I just said? That, 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 that's, that's, to be able to put those two together, to be able to take somebody who was pro-Rome, mostly pro-themselves, getting what they wanted and, you know, taking the taxes and then skimming a little bit off the top, tax collector, and somebody who was a zealot who wanted to overthrow that same government that you work for. And now Jesus is like, yeah, we all boys in here together. Should I be controversial? Might as well, right? When we look at those dynamics, we see that Jesus Christ, because their perspective was right, they looked at him. They didn't let these other issues. I'm not saying the other issues not important. They just didn't let these other issues and other preferences supersede the issue. And that's who Jesus Christ is. And we have to understand that in the church, this church, they did the same thing. They kept their perspective. Even though they had all these factions, all these beliefs, all this idolatry, all these things going on, they did not let Philadelphia and the culture of Philadelphia to invade the church and cause them to fight each other and backbite each other. No matter what persuasion they came from, they stayed focused. When we read and we read about Jesus Christ's power and we see him sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman and utterly transform her life forever. When we see Jesus Christ walking down the street and the short brother, I can relate, had to get up in the tree and watch so that way he could see him, right? And he said, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your house. Change his life forever. We see Jesus Christ rolling up on a funeral procession. And this widow had just lost her son. Bring him back to life. Change her life forever. I can give you case after case after case. And what the Bible says about Jesus is that he's the same yesterday. Today, and somebody say it with me, and right now, in here, that's the message. We don't deny his name. We take his name seriously. We take who he is because his name has to do with his character, has to do with who he is. You see, there was difficulty, though. There, there was difficulty. Did you catch it? Not only were they small, and when I think about this, it makes me think about Word Baptist Church because he, he gives two issues that they were having. They had people who were treating them terribly, and then they were small, right? And I just think about this wide open opportunity, this door, wide open opportunity. And it just makes me think about Word Baptist Church. I'm sorry, but it just makes me think about Word Baptist Church. I just want you, by show of hands, raise, raise your hand if you are not from America. You're, the country that you're from, you're not from it. Raise your hand. Just raise them high. I want everybody, just keep them high, and I want you to look around the room just for a second. Look, just look around the room. Y'all look around the room. You see that? You see these hands? We have people in here every Sunday. Every Sunday from all over the world. Might I just tell you, Lord willing, lest the Lord come back in the, in the, in the 11 o'clock, we're going to baptize a sister from Finland. You hear what I'm trying to tell you? We, the last three baptisms, we had a brother from Chicago, sister from Connecticut, and we're about to have a sister from Finland. You hear what I'm telling you? all from Jonesboro, Arkansas. Word Baptist Church. 
this little place on the hill, it's not on the main street. There ain't no signage. There ain't nothing fancy about the buildings. It's in a neighborhood that most folks are like, you going to church over there? Yes. Let's just keep it real. I know the reputation. Let's just keep it real in here this morning, right? Let's keep it real. And what's happening? Every week, lives are being changed and transformed for the glory of God and his kingdom. Every week. And it's not because of me. And honestly, let me just say, it's not because of any of us. It's because Jesus Christ, he has set the truth about what happens whenever you preach the word, when you take the word seriously, and when you do not deny his name. He will change souls. That is exactly what he said he would do, and that is exactly what he is doing. And when we come together in here, that is what this is about. That is what this is about. You see, he said, I know you're small. I know you're not real influential. You're not going to make it on the top 10 list of who's who's churches in the, in the world. I know you don't have the, the, the greatest bankroll. I know you don't have the greatest budget. But the Lord had opened the door for this church. And they were willing to walk right through it because they took his word seriously. And they had not denied his name. He also gives them a promise. I want you to see this. He says, listen, I know in verse 9, I, I will cause those who are a synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but they, they lie. Notice this. Now, some, sometimes when we read stuff in the Bible, we have to reread it, right? The text does not say that he's going to make them bow down at his feet, even though that's going to be the case. We know that from Philippians chapter 2, all right? But did you notice what he said? He says, I will make them come and bow down where? At your feet. L let me just tell you, although we right now in the church, we have consistent consistent opposition, ridicule, and all those things, even though that is true, there is vindication. There is going to be vindication. I'm just telling you right now, we are on the winning team. If you don't hear me say anything else in this point, you who love Jesus, who are in Christ, you are on the winning team. I know it don't always look like you're winning. I know it seems like the momentum's shifting and going. But can I tell you, momentum has not moved since Jesus Christ rolled that stone on the third day. It has not moved ever since. It might not look like it always, but ever since he rose, always been victorious. And so when we come to this, understand now that there's going to be a day of vindication where the Lord is going to let everybody else know who his children are and they will bow down. They will bow down. But can I tell you, as fired up as that gets me, my favorite part is the next part and make them know what? That I have loved you. You go through a tough time, just pull you up a little revelation. Three, nine. You ever forget? You pull you a little revelation. Three, nine. You allow that to minister to your soul, to change and transform you. You know, one of the things I love about this, and then we're going to move to our next point, and then I'm going to close, is, you know, this city, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And the Bible says about Jesus that he had to be made like his brethren in all ways, that he took on flesh. And so whenever we give our life to him, we come into a relationship with him. So we have a big brother. Anybody have a big brother growing up? Let me see. Anybody have a big brother? You know, big brother's all right. Now, they normally fight you. But if they're a good big brother, let somebody else try to fight you. What do they do? Oh, no, you ain't messing with my brother now. You ain't messing with my little sis. That ain't happening. You hear me? And so when I think about this, I think, listen, we got a big brother. And what he said is, is listen, that bully, these folks right here, they want to talk crazy. The enemy, listen, one day they're going to bow down. Big brother going to handle this thing. He's going to come in knocking folks out. Laying hands without prayer. You understand? That's what I love when I see this. There's going to come a day. But can I just tell you, we must be focused. We must make sure we look to him and we continue to trust him because he has a mission for us. I want you to look with me at Mark 9, and then we'll go to our last movie. Mark 9, 36 to 38. Can I just tell you? This is my Lord here. You ready? Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep with that. Can I just say, when I read this, I can't think of a better way to describe the folks that I, that I know that don't know the Lord. You hear me? 
they love to act like they're having a good time. Everything just good and, you know, everything rolling. But when they get to the house, can I tell you, they know the truth. They are distressed and dispirited. Anybody want to be real up in here before you came to know the Lord? You did a good job faking the fun and showing everybody else that you had it all together and everything was going well. And you got to the house and you knew the real deal. Anybody want to be honest up in here? They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Look at the next verse, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, what did he say? There are just a few people out there for us to get. That, was that what he said? We only got a few. The harvest, there ain't a whole lot. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? The harvest is, I didn't, I didn't make this up. Jack, I didn't, I didn't write this. He said the harvest is plentiful, but many times in the church, we act like it's, it's, it's not. We act like, man, there just ain't nobody out there. Listen, the harvest is plentiful. The people in your life, in your life, your life, in your life that don't know the Lord, there are an abundance of them. It's plentiful. But what's the problem? We don't got anybody that's willing to do the work. We don't have anybody that's willing to do the work. So what should we do in verse 38? I know y'all like preacher, tell me what to do, what to do. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Pray to the Lord to send workers out in his harvest. This is what I know. Then we'll look at our last movement is that the crazy thing is, is when you start praying about praying to God about sending people out into the harvest, you know what he normally starts with? You know, who he normally starts with the one who's praying. <laughs> the second thing and last thing I want us to see is that the Lord, he commands us to live by his promises. Verse 10. Verse 10, he says this. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in a new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. We see here the Lord, he lays out a whole lot of promises, a whole lot of promises he has for us. The first thing that he says in verse 10 because you have kept my word, the word of my perseverance, that's a very specific construction here. That's the idea of steadfastness that along with the gospel message, we know that's woven in the gospel is this idea of suffering for the child of God. It comes naturally. It's a package deal. He says, you've kept it. You've been willing to stay steadfast. He says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. Now, there are different people that want to say, in terms of this keeping us from, there are some people that look at this and they say, okay, so when does this happen? Does this happen before the great tribulation, which is this time that's coming upon the whole world? Does this happen in the middle of it or does this happen at the end of it? And there are different uh, views and there are brothers that I love that disagree with me, all right, but they ain't preaching this morning. And so uh, I believe that Jesus gives them a promise right here that he's going to keep the church from going through the hour of testing, the great tribulation. You want to know about that? Chapter 6 through 19, I'll tell you all about that. Just a couple of things to just jot down. The word church is not found in any verse for the rest of this whole thing, okay? Because we're going up out of there, all right? So when we look at this, he has a very clear way of saying it. He says, look, you've been going through all these tests, 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 tests. We got, we got anybody in here that uh, growing up, you struggle with taking tests. Anybody that had, you know, tests, I see them hands. Yeah, yeah, right here, this brother too. Like, I knew all of that. I get on test and just, I'm like, uh, right? Struggle with the test. But I love, though, I love whenever I got up in high school and uh, you would take the first semester test. And then by the end, when that last final came, if you had less than so many absences and you had a certain grade in the class, you know what they would allow you to do? What would they allow you to be? Ooh, exempt. Hallelujah. Let a brother be exempt. You understand me? Coming to school, coughing and everything so I don't miss too many days. 
making sure I handle business on all the tests that come before. So that way, and that final test, that final test, the brother could be exempt. You hear what I'm telling you? And what Jesus is saying to this church is, listen, I know you've been going through testing. You've been going through trials. You've been going through difficulties and your attendance has been good. And so guess what? You're going to be exempt. You're going to be exempt from that last final test. As a matter of fact, you get to do what you, what I did. I remember they still let you come to school and you can watch everybody else take tests. And that's what he says. That this time of testing that's coming up on the whole world, we will not endure it. He's going to pull us. That's a promise of protection, a promise of exemption. He's going to call us up to himself. It's what we call the rapture. And I know y'all thinking, read that to us, preacher. Give us that. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. If you got it, let me just read it to you. I want to encourage you. I know I've been swinging hard, so let's go on and get it now. It says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren about those who have fallen asleep. That, that's those who have died that are Christians so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Not against Christians grieving. We just don't grieve like folks who don't have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, who have died where? In Jesus. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died that are Christians. They come up first. But then what happens? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. How? First. Then we who are alive, and I'm hoping I'm in that account. That makes sense what I'm taking. Let a brother be in that account right there. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Can I just tell you some good news? Y'all watch this now. And so we shall, say it with me, always be with the Lord. Meaning at that moment, there's not going to ever be a time when we are not with the Lord. There's not going to ever be a time where wherever he is, we right up in there. You understand what I'm trying to tell you? We riding in on his coattails. We hanging around, playing in there with him everywhere where he is. And we look for this moment, this moment where he calls us out before he brings down that final test. And we trust him to do it so. We trust him. And we look to him. And we trust him. Can I just tell you God's a good God? And, you know, many times before the Lord does something in mass, he normally does it in one or two places just to show you that he's not playing. I like to call it the down payment. That makes sense what I'm trying to tell you. That's what you, when you go buy a car, they say, we need you to give us down payment. Show us you ain't playing. You hear what I'm trying to tell you? Whenever you're in a serious relationship and you're going to put the ring on it, what you're trying to tell us, I ain't playing. That makes sense. I ain't playing. And so he ain't playing. In the Old Testament, there are two individuals, two individuals. I just want to highlight two individuals that the Lord called up. They did not see death. One of them is named Enoch. Early on, when you get in there, it says that he walked with God and God took him. He was there and he was gone. That makes sense. He was there and he was gone. Real live brother, just like you and me. So to show you, God is not playing. There was another brother. Y'all know Brother Elijah? Everybody remember Brother Elijah? Brother Elijah loved the Lord, served the Lord, was a wrecking crew for the Lord. Every once in a while he had temper tantrums, being caged and stuff, pity partying. But otherwise, he was a good brother. That makes sense? I'm just telling the truth about what he did now. <laughs> and you read his account in Kings, and they cross over the river, and the Lord took him. He didn't die, took him, chariots of fire. So don't play the Lord like that. He always shows us that he means what he says, and he says what he means. And there's going to come a time where it just won't be Enoch and Elijah, but there's going to be a whole host of us that's getting up out of here in the twinkling of an eye that are going to be changed. And we can trust that promise. Not only does he promise, he says that this is our, notice this, this is not just a localized thing in Philadelphia. How do we know that? Because he says this testing is, is, is that hour which is about to come how? Upon the whole world. The whole world. When we, when we start preaching through chapter 6 through 19, you can be like, ooh, I'm glad I ain't here. And you're going to be telling your friends, look, you don't want to be here for that. But God is gracious in his timeline in which it's a limited amount of time. It exposes people, and he says it's going to come quickly, meaning it's going to happen suddenly. When it happens, it's going to happen suddenly, meaning it can happen any day or any time. 
The only way you can hold to the imminent return of Jesus is if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That's the only way you can do it. So when we look at this, we must see that he promised us that he's going to protect us. He's going to imminently work. But he says we have to be willing to hold to that word. Did you catch it? He says this, verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. This idea of holding, it means to hold on. Hold on to the word. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to the gospel. Don't allow anybody to change your mind about him or about what you're doing. Because there's going to be great deliverance. This idea of crown, everybody loved that. That's why he said you got a crown coming, right? And in Thessalonians, this idea of a crown means those are the individuals that come to faith. That when you, God uses your life to see people saved, man, you get a crown, a reward. It's a beautiful thing. It's all he is. But, but he gives you the crown and he's saying, make sure you hang on. You hang on to the folks. You continue to pray. You continue to share. You keep on sharing the gospel. I don't care if they told you no already. You just stay lockstep, focused, because the enemy wants to discourage you. People want to try to pull you away. But you keep on sharing. You keep on living. You keep on serving. You keep on declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord and the only way has been and will always be the way of salvation. He says, make sure you hang tight, even when it gets difficult. Then he lays out promise, and this is how I want to close this morning. He lays out a promise. And he says it this way in verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, from my God and and my new name. The first promise is a promise of stability. When he when he makes this promise about being a pillar, I know. When I first read this and I used to read this, I thought, man, that don't sound like a whole lot of fun. We're just standing in there like a statue all the time. Like, that don't just, that don't get me excited about heaven, you know? It just don't get me, yes. And they get anybody excited, you just a statue there all the time? No, right? So this is a promise of stability. You got to remember, he's writing to believers who live in a city called Philadelphia that is prone to earthquakes. And what he is letting them know is, is that on this earth, your life might be shaken. On this earth, things might be thrown down. Things might not come together. But I'm telling you, because you are in me, there's going to be stability. And I'm going to hold you. And nobody's going to be able to shake you. Nobody's going to be able to take you out of a relationship with me. Nobody's going to be able to do it. There is stability. I have set you in a place, in a steady place, in a stable place in heaven. He says, you're going to be left standing. The next promise that he makes about this name has to do with honor. Did you catch it? Not just stability, but also honor. He says this, and I, I, I will, you will not go out anymore. And he says, and I will write on him the name of my God. Did y'all catch that? You see, a, a common practice in this day and still in our day is that whenever you want to honor somebody, they will put up a pillar and then they will put their name on it like a plaque. We, we still do things like this to, to this day. We put names on buildings. We put names on statues. We put names on places. And it's this idea that Jesus Christ is going to display and to show and to give honor. The people in Philadelphia didn't know nothing about this little bitty church. There wasn't a whole lot of honor and influence. But Jesus says, I see you, and I'm going to make sure I honor you. I'm going to put my name on you. Did you catch it? I'm going to put my name, the name, right on him, the name of my God and the name of the city, my God, and the new Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to do this. Now, I just want to give you some examples here. This is not just an idea of, of honor, but it also has to do with identification and ownership. You see, whenever you put your name on something, you're letting everybody else know who it belongs to. You know, I remember growing up, my dad he would, put my, he would put our name, our last name, Andrews, on everything. Shoes, hat, glove, bat, everything. You would have thought, man, listen, customized, ready. I can remember that. I loved it. I remember now with my son, his soccer ball. I wrote, Elliot Andrews. We at the game just yesterday. And we're like, son, where your ball at? Where your ball? I don't know, daddy. We got two or three that look just like yours, right? How do we know which one is his? Got his name on it. Identification and ownership. 
And what he's saying is, is that even though people in Philadelphia, they don't know who you are, that, you, that you're not the most influential. He says, listen, you belong to me and I'm going to make sure that you're well known. Then he talks about this city. Did y'all catch it? This city has to do with a home. That they would no longer have to worry about their houses being torn down, moving from the city back to the country, back from the country to the city. They wouldn't have to worry about these dynamics, but that there was going to be a place where they were going to be a citizen and they'll be a citizen forever. And there was not going to be this back and forth that they were going to be in a stable, consistent home. And he says, I'm going to put the name. on. You know, every time I think about this, it makes me think about the fact that we like to identify with greatness. People will put jerseys on with a name on the front, with a name on the back, because we, they want to be identified with greatness. And what the Lord is saying is, is you don't have to put the jersey on. I'm going to put it on you. You don't have to put the name on the front. I'm going to put it on you because you will be identified with greatness. You see, the last thing I want us to see is this idea of a new Jerusalem, this city that's coming. You see, the Bible says at the very end of Revelation that this is like a bride. He uses a comparison to a bride. And he says that this city is going to be coming down. It's going to be adorned. And, you know, when I think about weddings, I get the opportunity to officiate a lot of weddings. I've been in my own wedding. I've been a, a best man, a groomsman, and I've officiated. I've been an usher. I've had just about every piece you can have as a male in a wedding. That makes sense what I'm trying to tell you. And whenever I think about this, every time... I think about this, I think about my wedding, and I think about the weddings that I've officiated. You know, I think about my wedding because I know that day when I saw my bride, when I saw her through the doors of that, that, that church, I thought, ooh, that's my bride right there. She's mine. Thank you. That's the first thought. But then I began to think about the dynamics of me as a husband. You know, and we, we're getting ready to be married, and this bride was going to get a groom, but can I just tell you, this groom, I'm flawed. I knew I was going to disappoint her. I knew that there were going to be times of disillusion because I'm not perfect. I knew that. I knew that, but we still decided to get married anyways. And when I think about the Lord, when I think about what we have to look forward to, the, the beautiful thing about a relationship with the Lord is that whenever we connect to him, there's not going to be any disillusionment. There's not going to be any flaws. There's not going to be any mess ups or any issues. As a matter of fact, the relationship with him now and in heaven just gets sweeter and sweeter and greater and greater as it goes. And so when he tells them, he says, I'm going to put my name on you. You know what? Whenever we got married, Stephanie had a name, but she got a new name. I put my name on her. You hear me? We together now. She went from an M to an A. Went from the middle of the line to the front of the line. You hear me? And that's what the Lord is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm going to put my name on you. And we'll forever be together. You see, I don't know about your relationship with the Lord. But can I just tell you, as a people and as a church, we're called to be faithful to him. We're called to trust him and look to him. Because he has come, that we might have a relationship with him and tell other people about him. See, one of the things I know that's true about a person whenever they're in love with somebody, they're going to show it. They're going to talk about it. That's going to change the way in which they live. And I believe that our love for the Lord, understanding and trusting in his love for us, should cause us to be true to his mission. But can I tell you, there's another side to this thing. I just want you to see it in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 38. I'm going to read this and pray. Jesus, in summoning the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes into the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. 
you love him and all you show for him. Amen. I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved. And that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one, believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior, he will save you. If you're listening to this service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during the time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media, at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continuing the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time, right here at Word Baptist Church.